We may know about the love of God, even the world uses that to justify their sin. God is a God of love, for example, and so we should just love everyone. But few realize the importance of embracing the fear of the Lord as well. Yet Scripture has much to say about this. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the what? What is it? It is the beginning of wisdom. That's the starting line. That's where you, uh, where you start. Let's see why this is true for all people, for nations and for churches. The nations need to fear the Lord. Uh, first of all, we, I, I want to st- step back and, and we need to note that God loves and wants all nations to be saved. Would you agree with that? The Scripture is full of, uh, of, uh, of that kind of talk. God said He owned all land. He said, for the land is mine. And God said He distributed it to Israel and the nations alike. Not just Israel, but the nations got it. He, he set boundaries for them, and He gave them certain lands. He said in Amos, are, you, uh, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, or the people from the upper Nile, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? The Philistines, secondly, from Kaftor or Crete, and the Arameans or Syrians from Kerr. Didn't I do that with all of them? Deuteronomy 2 says the Israelites were not allowed to take land from the Edomites or the Moabites or the Ammonites because God had given land to those nations. And if they wanted to pass through, the Israelites were told, instructed by God, that they had to pay for everything that they were using there, including the water. God loves not only Israel, but he loves the nations. He cares about them greatly. Ezekiel 5 says, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Why? To be a light to draw them to God. That's why. Here's a sample verse. And by the way, for every one of these principles that we look at today, there are so many verses throughout Scripture about these things, confirming these things. Psalm 98, verse 2 to 3 says, He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Now listen to this. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Did they see Israel being delivered from Egypt? Yes or no? Yes. And God set her right in the center. That's what he said. That's what his word says. So that everyone would be able to see how God was interacting with her, whether he was blessing Israel or whether he was uh, punishing or rebuking Israel. It would be a demonstration for all to see so they would see the light of God and be drawn to him. Over and over it says that he wanted them to know the Lord too. All the nations. First King chapter 8, verse 60 says that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, that there is no other. But not only did, does God love and want all nations to be saved, God uses progressive judgments to warn and draw nations back. See, see uh, what Nahum 1 says. It says <clears throat> that the Lord is what? He is slow to anger. We'll see how that plays out as we talk about progressive judgment. First of all, God begins by sending prophets. When a nation sins and when she turns away from God, God begins by sending prophets. 
to warn the nations. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, it says, I have persistently, that's God speaking, sent all my servants' prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they did what? They what? Stiffened their neck. God sends prophets today as well. There's a book that we've been promoting, uh, the Esther on, Esther on Kim biography. And uh, Moody puts it out. It's a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, book. And uh, I ordered a hundred of these books for my marketplace leaders, and they're buying them up and reading them. Um, Esther was a, a uh, daughter of a Korean believer, a Korean mother, and a Japanese father who was not a believer during the Japanese occupation of 1939-1945. As she was spending time with the Lord one day, God spoke to her to warn the Japanese government. Now, she had been sent by her Japanese father to Japan to receive her education, so she was well-versed in the language and the culture. Now she was back in Korea, which was being oppressed by the Japanese, and God spoke to this diminutive little woman uh, in her 20s and said, I want you to go and I want you to warn the Japanese Imperial Army. Can you believe that? And this is, these are the words that God spoke to her. That Japan will be punished and be burnt and destroyed by sulfur rain unless she repents and turns from this course of destruction. She was supposed to deliver that particular message to the Japanese government. An elderly, uh, in the meantime, she was sent uh, to a city, which is now in North Korea, <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit just told her one day, I want you to leave the city where you are now, and I want you to go to the city. And the Holy Spirit didn't say why. He just said, I want you to go there. She was staying there. Just think about it. She's staying in a place where she doesn't normally live. In the meantime, there's an elderly Korean gentleman by the name of Elder Park, they referred to him. And he was in, another, in a third city, and he was praying one day, and the Holy Spirit said to him, I want you to go to Pyongyang, and I want you to uh, meet, go to a house where there is a Miss On staying. He had never met Miss On. He had never heard of Miss On, but the Spirit directed him. Sounds like the book of Acts, doesn't it? Just a little. He said... God wants to, uh, and so uh, he went. He went to the city, and he went to the correct house, knocked on the door, and inquired if there was a Miss On staying there. The Holy Spirit directed him to the right place, and when he met her, he said, God wants to use you to warn the Japanese. Can you believe that? Here the Holy Spirit had spoken to her to go to that city and said, I want you to go, I want you to, go to J Japan from Korea, and I want you to warn the Japanese government. She's thinking, this is like a little bit crazy. And then this elderly man comes and says, God told me that you're supposed to go. And so the two went together. And on March the 23rd, it's, um, it's, it's an incredible story. 1939, in a completely miraculous fashion, the two of them were allowed in the heavily guarded Japanese imperial diet where they dropped a large banner from above warning the Japanese of impending judgment. We, ha we still have them today. Billy Graham, has, who's had the ear of presidents for years, has written books on the, the coming storm. Uh, David Wilkerson has written prophetic books on what's coming to America, and some of what he's written and he's passed on now uh, has already begun, things that were not going then uh, from his church there in Times Square, mid-Manhattan. 
Next, God sends natural and economic disasters. First, he sends prophets to warn them and draw the, pe- draw the nations back. But if that doesn't work, then God sends natural and economic disasters. Amos chapter 4 says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. And go ahead and read the phrase with me. Yet you have not returned to me. I also withheld rain from you. Yet you have not returned to me. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me. I killed your young men with a sword. Yet you have not returned to me. In fact, it says it one more time. We'll come back to that later. Note they were expected, the people were expected to recognize when it was for correction. Job tells us, uh, tells us well, uh, the Old Testament is just full of the fact that God controls nature. He controls this planet. He controls nature. Ultimately, he controls it. You may be able to explain some things about how he does it, but he's the one behind it. And he does it to bless his people. He does that at times. Job says that. Sometimes he does it for the land's sake itself. And that's another topic. And sometimes it says in that same verse that he uses it to correct the nations and to correct people. Uh, he, hang, he, he deals with the weather. But often, in, and, and he expects them to recognize it. That's why he lists this. The prophet Amos says, I, God says, I did this, but you didn't return. I did this then, but you didn't do it. So then I did this, and you still didn't respond. Five times God says, you should have recognized it. But often, instead of repentance, the nations responded with defiance. In Isaiah 9, verse 9 to 10, we also see this in Malachi chapter 1 uh, about Edom, but here it says, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen. In other words, a disaster has struck. That's the context of this passage. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but no problem, we will put cedars in their place. Instead of repenting, they redoubled their pursuit of more wickedness. You know, in 2013, uh, California endured the worst drought since 1877, and it got worse in 2014. The entire state now is under severe drought conditions. Three days ago, one report said... It's now threatening the American food supply because half of the fruit, nuts, and vegetables come from Central Valley. And when Fran and I were there in February, Air Force One uh, carrying uh, President Obama flew in uh, just about an hour and a half away from there and then flew right to where we were staying. And he was coming to check the drought conditions and stuff, and then he promised aid. I'm going to tell you something. All the money in the world is not going to bring rain. Money does not solve all these problems. You can't just keep printing money. God says, I want you to recognize my discipline and my judgment, my progressive judgments, because I'm calling you back. And, uh, and that wasn't happening. And the typical response that I see on the television uh, whenever there's a disaster, the typical watch for it because I hear it over and over, and it's just a repeat of what we saw them do in the Old Testament. It's, we're resilient, and we're going to rebuild. 
The question isn't, I wonder why these things are ratcheting up. I wonder why there's trouble. The response is always, we're resilient, we can handle this, we'll rebuild, we'll be fine. Thank you very much. That's arrogance and pride in our hearts. And there's no evidence of repentance either. In the U.S., 3,000 abortions per day. Those kind of figures don't even bother us anymore. One million per year. In Canada, 100,000 per year. All, and, and abortions are allowed in all nine months of a pregnancy, as well as partial birth abortions as well. Justin Trudeau came, came along and just recently announced that you can't run in the Liberal Party anymore. You cannot run as a candidate if you are pro-life. If you are against abortion, you are not allowed to run as a candidate. He won't allow you. Not only do we allow wickedness, we are chasing after it. And we are demanding that the whole country pursue it. The majority conservative government will not, tolerate, will, will not even tolerate debate on abortion. Several provincial law societies voted not to allow Trinity Western University law grads to practice in their provinces because of their lifestyle standards saying that they, sh- that they will hold to sexual purity while in school. Isn't that a horrible thing? Isn't that an awful thing that a school would require that its students behave? that they have some form of morality, and now the law society started voting on it. Several of them have gone against, and the Manitoba uh, Law Society was supposed to uh, vote on it this week too. And, uh, and so we, uh, uh, you know, we prayed about it at Marketplace, and Chris sent out an email. A bunch of you prayed, and guess what? They voted against it. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah. They're, not, they're going to allow the grads. That's a good thing. But that is, that is where, that's where we're headed. The problem is that many people, including believers, don't believe that God is in disasters. <laughs> it's just a natural phenomenon. Yeah, of course it's involved with natural phenomenon, but God is controlling it at the, at, at the root. Here's another way to say it. I mean, when you think about earthquakes and uh, you think about... Uh, Volcanoes and that kind of thing. You can't put that all on global warming. I'm sorry. And yet the charts, I have charts in my room. I didn't bring them. I should have. I thought, I'm, i got to cut so much out. I don't have time. I have charts that just show the graphs going this for the number of tornadoes. I mean, uh, volcanoes and earthquakes. Unbelievable. We just try to explain these things away. Here's another way to say that. We don't have a fear of the Lord. We don't actually think that our actions have any consequences before God. Mark my word, these disasters will increase and they will spread to Canada. Oh, right now we've been left alone for a bit, but it's coming. Finally... After God sends prophets and natural disasters and economic disasters, and that one's coming, you just wait till they run out of printed money. And this whole thing is going to collapse like a deck of cards. It will. And finally, but God's just sustaining the whole thing. Economists are telling us that it, some, of it, some of it doesn't make sense. 
Then finally God sends invading armies. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 30, for many years you were patient with him. Isn't that amazing? People say, the Old Testament is just a wrathful, angry God. You know what he is? He's a very loving, merciful, gracious God. He's slow to anger, and he's patient, and he sends progressive judgments because he doesn't want anybody to perish, but everybody to come to the... Yeah, wants us to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what Peter says. For many years you were patient with him by your spirit. You admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to neighboring people. See? Progressive. The northern kingdom went to the uh, Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom of Judah, they, they, they were taken in by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah chapters, chapters 42 to 51 says that God does the same with all the nations. Go there and read uh, the whole list of Middle Eastern countries there that were under the same kind of judgment. Jesus, in fact, said, remember uh, when, he was, uh, when, when he was here on earth, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, see the ones that are coming to warn and stone those who sent, sent to you. Jesus himself was known as the prophet. Moses had talked about a great prophet that would one day come. Jesus was that prophet, and he warned them, and they wouldn't even listen to him, and in the end, they didn't stone him, they crucified him. That's how they handled the messengers sent to warn them. He said, how often, Jesus' heart, think about the Father's heart here, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but what does it say next? But you are not willing. You're not willing. So Jesus predicted, uh, I remember as he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane on the, on the night before he was crucified, uh, just they're leaving the temple. He had just spoken in the temple. And as they're leaving, it was a beautiful edifice. And the disciples said to him, Matthew 24, Lord, isn't this an amazing building? And Jesus picks up on that and says, I'm telling you that not one of these stones will be left on top of one another, uh, on the other. And sure enough, in 70 A.D., after Jesus left, by the way, that's judgment in the New Testament, or after or post-New Testament, it's not Old Testament, the temple was destroyed and the city was burnt by the emperor Titus, the Roman emperor. We see it with the British Empire. At its height, 1922, it was the greatest empire in history. The empire on which the sun never sets. And today she's reduced to little more than pomp and ceremony with nothing to rule over. In the Toronto Sun, March 27th, Michael Corrin wrote, and so what I'm going to read next, I'm not saying, I'm quoting from what Michael Corrin said in the Toronto Sun. Because Britain is so weak, she recently enshrined Islamic Sharia law in the legal system. Can you believe that? that the British legal system has now enshrined some of Islamic Sharia law in it. Men will get double inheritance compared to women. Non-believers will get none. Only Muslim marriages will be, are recognized. Any others are viewed then as adultery, and that's the problem that that woman is having who's, who's going to be killed in the Middle East there. A state school paid $125,000 to install a speaker system so Muslim children could be called to prayer. Public money. So much for separation as state and church. 
Muslim rape gangs, this is all in the article, Muslim rape gangs have operated for years, he says, and the authorities have been terrified to name their religion. Little Pakistani girls are forcibly married to their cousins. Female genital mutilation is far from uncommon, and yet, he says, so few politicians have the stomach to expose and resist. Talk about stepping back into the Dark Ages. And as Britain goes, most of the Commonwealth eventually goes, and right now, Activists are already pushing for it in Canada. The same thing. Can you believe it? Invading armies. Oh, they come in different ways. Eventually, that's what happens. America and her allies who resisted the mighty Axis alliance, Germany, Italy, and Japan in World War II, today are too weak to handle Afghanistan or to do little else than launch verbal grenades against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Putin just chuckles. Because he knows there's nothing behind it. Nobody's going to do a thing. Proverbs 16 says, By the fear of the Lord, the understanding that there are consequences for our behavior and the way we live, one turns away from evil. That's how we raised our children. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Did you see that? When a country has a fear of the Lord and lives in a righteous manner, then God makes his enemies at peace with him. You say, no, no, it's the nuclear deterrent. Well, he may use that. But even nuclear deterrence doesn't keep the enemy out if God takes his hand of protection out away. And that's what we're now beginning to see in the West. How does the Lord do this? Second Chronicles 17 says, And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. That's how they do it. And that's what happened even uh, with, uh, with Judah. God would say to the, uh, to the men, uh, several times a year, you're supposed to come up to Jerusalem for the major festivals. And when you do, don't worry about the enemies around you, I'll take care of them. You just come to my festivals and you will be protected. He sent the fear of the Lord on the surrounding nations and nothing happened while they were gone having a celebration with God. Is that amazing? Wow. Third, God relents if nations repent because he is gracious. So first of all, we see that... Um, um, uh, we, uh, first of all, we see that he loves all the nations, wants them to be saved. God uses progressive judgments to draw them back. And then finally, God relents if nations repent because he is gracious. Isn't that wonderful? He is a gracious and long-suffering and patient God wanting everybody to repent. And if nations repent, God usually relents. Jeremiah chapter 18 says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn, uh, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation that I warned repents of its evil, when I, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And that's precisely what God did in, did in the Jonah story. Jonah didn't want to go over there because he knew what God was going to do. God was going to let them off the hook, and he wanted their arch enemy to be destroyed. 
And so he rebelled against God. But God was merciful and gracious to him by sending a, uh, and bring, you know, send some judgment to him. He's thrown overboard and then a whale came and he was sitting in acid for a few days. Uh, that's quite a judgment. But God was merciful and gracious to him and long-suffering. And when he repented, he let him go. And then Jonah didn't want that same grace and mercy and long-suffering to be shown to Nineveh, the capital city of Syria. Assyria, the, their arch enemies. But look what the king says. Let everyone call urgently. This is after Jonah had preached that they were going to die. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence, said the king. Who knows, may, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw that they did what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had what? He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Wow. If, they, if nations will not repent, however, they cross, eventually they cross God's grace line and face final judgment. Amos 4, uh, 11 to 12 says, Yet you have not returned to me. That's going back to that passage where five times he said, You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. You and I don't want to hear that phrase. That's a sobering phrase. When God says it, you've crossed the grace line. No more. God says to America, he says to Canada and the West, if you don't repent, prepare to meet your God. So why is this so important that we see this, in, uh, that God is actually gracious and loving and, and kind? He's got, he's, got God, he's got strict lines, and he's a holy God, and he's just, but he, he's trying to draw us to himself. And we see that in the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, we also see that God is a God of judgment and justice, and that he has a grace line in the New Testament as well. And that he acts the same way in the New Testament as he was acting in the Old Testament. No different. He's acting the same way today as he did then. And, church, and we'll see that next because churches need to fear the Lord. Most believers know that Jesus loves the church. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ, what? Love the church, Ephesians 5. But fewer know that Jesus is evaluating and judging his churches now. On May the 12th, 2008, I was on a flight to Kelowna um, for a conference there, and I was reading a leadership book by a believer about organizational boards. And, it was that, uh, and what the book was saying was that boards are there to serve on behalf of the owners. And I was very disturbed as I read this because I knew that this book was being promoted to many church leaders across our country. And I worried that they would forget or ignore who the real owner of the church is. Jesus predicted that he would build the church, and he said, you are Peter, and I will build what? Whose church? One more time. Yeah. The church does not belong to Pastor Ray. Are you happy about that? You might want to shake somebody's hand next to you and say, thank God it doesn't belong to him. Thank God he's not in charge. But the church also does not belong to the board. Thank God it doesn't belong to the board either. It doesn't belong to the senior staff here. And you know who else it doesn't belong to here? 
Ah, it doesn't belong to you either. And I'll tell you something else that the church doesn't belong, who it doesn't belong to, denominations. It doesn't belong to the denomination either. And we need to all get our hands off of God's business and listen to what he wants us to do. He said he would build his church. It's, it's his because he bought it with his own blood, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The way to build Christ's church is not to ask the members what they want. The way to build Christ's church is not for church or denominational leaders to come up with their best plans. And the way to build Christ's church, is, but the way to uh, build Christ's church is to carry out what the owner, Jesus Christ, wants. That's the only thing that matters. So as I was thinking about this on the aircraft, I, uh, I had this thought that I should go, this is back in 2008, that I should go uh, restudy Revelation chapter 1 to 3, uh, the very place where Chris has been speaking the last uh, few months. And I wrote a paper at that time, which became the foundation for our key renewal principle, Jesus as functional Lord. Zach Pearson then wrote the song, Head of the Church. As soon as I started teaching that to staff, he wrote that song which we sang earlier. In Revelation chapter 1, John saw Jesus. And it sounds very different than the picture you and I have in our minds of the Lord Jesus. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. <clears throat> the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And then he says, John says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is the Lord Jesus the way he is now. For a short while, he, he, had, this, uh, he had this very human, touchable kind of look to him. But he is no longer this meek, mild, shepherd, loving sheep kind of cuddly person. He is the Lord of the universe. He is God himself. He is Jehovah. Is that true? Yeah. And this is Jesus as Lord, God himself, as he is now. He isn't a figurehead monarch like the Queen of England either. He actually rules. It's, it's not, people, uh, if, you ask, if you ask the church in the West, is Jesus Lord? Everybody goes, oh yes, of course he is. But what do they mean by that? Is he a figurehead or is he a functional, real, literal Lord who rules and reigns? Scripture says he's the latter. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the churches. That's uh, as he says in verse 20. These were identifiable local churches geographically located in Asia. Why was Jesus walking among the lampstands or churches? Because he was evaluating them. Look at what he did. In his evaluations, he commended them for correct present behavior. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you can, cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Good work! That's what he's saying. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. 
Good work, and that you have not grown weary. Good work, he's commending them. But he also rebuked the same church for bad behavior. Verse 4, the very next verse. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the first love you had at first. And then he admonished them to repent. He didn't just rebuke them for it. He said, I want you to repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And then he warned them that if they didn't do it, there would be discipline and judgment coming. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So here we see Jesus the way he really is after his ascension at the right hand of Father, the place of power, and he's ruling and reigning regally and literally. He's walking among the lampstands, local churches in Canada. He's walking by Southland, and he's examining and evaluating her. He's examining the people that say they are members of this church. He's examining the leadership and their decisions. He's examining everything that we're doing. He's examining your church if you're from another church. And he's evaluating it. And he warns us that if we aren't careful, we'll lose our lampstand. He was, he's referring to an immediate visit and preliminary judgment. He's not talking about last day judgment. He's saying, I'm going to come and do something with you now. In first. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter said it as well. This was John in Revelation. Now we have Peter for his time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, John said, Those whom I love, I what? Help me. I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. In chapter 2, he said, I gave her, Jezebel, time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. She was in the church. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. That's judgment. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. That's judgment. Wouldn't you agree? And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. You know what I do? I recoil when I see in the church of the West today, and I see, I've seen it in our church, where somebody leaves, uh, breaks the vow that they made to their marriage partner, walks out. I'm not talking about the person who is the victim here. I'm talking about the person who walks out, finds another man or woman, and then hooks up with them and turns around and walks right back into the same church and sits, sits down, maybe in another section of the church, as though nothing happened. And sometimes my eyes just grow wide and I look a little bit up just to see in case something strikes. Because I actually expect it will. Wow. There's no fear of the Lord before their eyes. They don't recognize that God actually does something about these kinds of things. Revelation 2.16 says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He didn't mean in the last day. He meant very shortly. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, we have Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land and 
held back a certain portion, which in itself wasn't wrong, but then they lied about it because they wanted to look good to everybody, brought the money to the, laid it at the feet of Apostle Peter, and the Holy Spirit whispered to Peter and said, this is a ruse, they're lying. And so Peter said, is this what you, you know, is this what you got for it? Oh yes, that's what we got for it. And he said, you have not just lied to man, but to the Holy Spirit, which is God, and uh, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie like that? And look what happened next. When Ananias, Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. I bet that was the last time you had any of that happening in that church. What do you think? Then his wife, not knowing what had just happened, lied in the same way. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the church because they heard these th and everyone who heard those things. You say, well, that was an isolated case. Not so. Let's see what Paul now says in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the, uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself that is why, how many? Many of you are weak and will, and ill, I'm sorry, and some have even died prematurely. That's what he's saying. Paul clearly says that many are weak and ill, and some have even died prematurely because of judgment from the Lord. Listen, I'm not saying that everyone, ba everything bad that happens to someone happens because they've sinned. Job is a classic example, and we've talked about this many times in this church before. Fran has had 10 surgeries. She's still not healed of her condition. But I'm going to tell you something. One of the things we dealt right up front with was, Lord, is there sin in our lives? Is, are you dealing with us in judgment? But you know what? Many, many believers never ask the Lord that question. They just assume that everything is good and that they are not being disciplined. And the Spirit says, you, you need to check that out. But in, I, I will say this, in the 26 years of ministry, I've seen cases where people were blatantly living in rebellion towards God, and whom God openly chastised. It's happened in my ministry, and I could give you names. And recently, I've been praying about, I, I've, I've been praying about a particular list of people here and elsewhere and said, Lord, we can't have fear of the Lord in this church if you just leave it alone. Do something. Not, to, not, not because you hate them, but because you love them and want to draw them back because ultimately there's going to be trouble for them if they don't. And because the church won't have a fear of the Lord and she won't be kept from her backsliding. She'll just, she'll go into, she'll go into sin because she doesn't think, she'll think that she can do anything she wants. And then we can't be the light that we need to be in society if we're exactly the same as they are. Would you agree with that? How can we be light when we're exactly the same? Acting and talking and looking, exactly the same. So, we need to grow in the fear of the Lord. How do we do that? Let me start by saying this. Fear of the Lord is a gift from a gracious, loving, heavenly Father. He does not want you to flunk the final exam on Judgment Day. That's why He does it. 
That's why he works with us and disciplines us. Years ago, I, I remember our finances were a wreck. This is years ago. I had a little driving school business. I was going to Bible college. God had called me out of ministry already, into ministry already. And I was, I was not giving very much on that little driving school. We had very little. And, and all at once, all our business dried up. And then one day I went to prayer and I asked the Lord, is there something wrong? And he said, yeah, there's something wrong. You're not tithing on your business. And so I said, that's it? He said, that's it. I went up and I told Fran and I said, you won't believe it. This is, this is the problem. So we immediately changed our giving habits. And guess what happened? Immediately, the tap turned on, the phone started ringing, we had business, and it was full and busy like we'd never been before. Discipline for our good. Have you ever disciplined one of your children for their good? Yeah. You discipline when they step, walk onto a street where there's all kinds of big trucks going along. You discipline them so that, that they won't get hit by a Mack truck. Right? And that's what God says. So how do we grow in it? Um, uh, God says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. When we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be what? Condemned along with the world. But you have to take responsibility of, uh, for this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's two ways, two key ways to do it. And we'll be done. First way is you have to meditate on God's goodness and severity. Romans chapter 11 says, Therefore consider the goodness and what? Help me, church. Severity of God on those who fell. Severity but towards you. Goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. You say, God does that with believers? Oh yeah, he does that with believers. We need to intentionally consider his goodness and severity to have this consciousness. But to do that, we have to be in the word. Amen? King Josiah. He, was, uh, he followed Manasseh and Ammon, two wicked kings, his father and grandfather. And he decided to pursue the Lord with all his heart. And one day they found the book of the law, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law in the rubble of the temple. And they brought it to the king and they started to read it to him. And when they read it, you know what he did? He tore his robes and he said, Oh my, go to Huldah the prophetess and have her inquire of the Lord because... God may be judging us. We may be coming under severe judgment. He said, For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. But you know how he knew that? Because he went into the word. Because he was in the word. That's when he understood it. Recently, um, um, I received a study. I mean, the book of uh, Proverbs, uh, a book of wisdom 15 times talks about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs talks about it. A study was done on Bible reading in Canada very recently, and, and here's, here's the results. Since 1996, weekly Bible reading declined by 60%, 60 percent, six zero percent. Since 19, since I started at Southland, Bible reading has decreased 60 percent. Only 14% of Canadians actually read the Bible at least once per month. And that's a key reason why there's no fear of the Lord in our nation anymore and no fear of the Lord in our churches anymore. 
if you don't know that there's going to be consequences, you're not going to fear consequences. Here's the second thing. So you've got to be in the Word every day. Listen in prayer. You must be able to hear the Spirit's commendations, rebukes, warnings uh, that He gives. Jesus repeated this, this to each of the seven churches. He said, He who has a what? Ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Many churches and believers are completely oblivious to the fact that Jesus is warning them, and it's because they don't even hear him. It's an amazing thing to me today that in the church in the West and the church in Canada, that believers who are called by Jesus' name, when Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, period. And the shepherds don't know how to hear God's voice. The boards don't know how to hear God's voice. Senior level, uh, senior level staff members don't know how to hear God's voice. And the people in the church don't know how to hear God's voice. Denominational leaders don't know how to hear God's voice. And, and college and seminary teachers do not know how to hear God's voice. I'm not saying every individual. You understand? But I'm saying in, in mass. I'm going to say, I'm going to say something to you. If you can't hear his voice, he can't speak to you. He can't warn you. He can't rebuke you. He can't can't stop you. He can't do nothing. That's what happened in my case. I could hear him, so I could correct it before we went under. I want to read something to you to wrap up. This is is an email that I received from a Mark Place leader who's a counselor in the RM of Hanover. He is not a member at our church. He uh, pastors part-time in another church uh, uh, from here, and he also owns a farm. And he's attended my Marketplace Leaders group of 70, 75, 80 guys that meet every Wednesday for several years. He's been there. He's always there. And he's growing. He's about 40 years old. And he told me I could read this. In fact, I could use his name, and I'm sure if I I wanted to. But he wrote me an email, and he said, Hello, Pastor Ray. This morning's cell was incredible for me. It actually felt to me like the whole thing was set up for the Holy Spirit to talk to me. I would like to share it with you. He said, when we listened with a question regarding course corrections or how to be used in this kingdom, I simply got the words trust and obey. Nothing life-changing there because I had them listen about certain things. Then you encouraged us to ask, is there anything standing in the way? And immediately I got the word self-discipline. Go to bed on time, get up on time, be diligent, not wasting uh, time at the end of the days, uh, at the end of the day, browsing the internet, spend time with me. I want to know you. I want to know you, you to know me. This man says, I confess my lack of self-discipline is sin, and I asked him what practical steps I should take to change. And he gave me three do's and two don'ts that are very practical things for me to apply. Look at that. Exactly what we're talking about. He could hear God. And along with the do's and don'ts, he brought to mind Revelation 3, 19 and 20. Those whom I love and rebuke, and I discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, stand at the door and knock. At first, I just thought, he says, about how he wants to come in and eat with me and I should pursue getting to know him better. Then I noticed the word discipline in verse 19 and it jumped right off the page. Definitely a rhema word for me. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, it said. 
instantly I knew that this was more than just self-discipline reprimand from the Lord. Now to make it make sense to you, you need to understand um, that in the last few weeks, I've felt like I've been under heavy attack from the enemy on every front. My wife would back me up and say to me many times in the last couple of weeks, we have concluded at the end of the day that we must be doing something right because the devil is attacking us through many different pressures, struggles, personal issues, and relentless breakdowns on the farm. We have been throwing around one-liners, he said, like pressure creates diamonds and fire refines gold. As I read this scripture, however, the lights went on. It had not been an attack from the devil. This was discipline from my heavenly Father, discipline for my lack of self-discipline. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I was humbled that God loves me and at the same time embarrassed that I needed discipline. This was all so real to me, I could not stop from weeping. That's what happens when you spend time in the Word and you learn to hear His voice and you spend time with Him and He can correct you. And He assumed He knew the reason for the problems and He was wrong. The Spirit said, no, you got it wrong. I'm disciplining you. Right now, I just want you to take a moment in quiet and I want you to ask the Lord, is there something you want to speak? Is there some sin I need to confess? Is there something that you want me to repent of? Is there something that you want me to change? And anything that comes to your mind right now, just repent of it. Confess it. Say, Lord, I'm so sorry. And uh, I'm, 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 going, I'm going to turn from that. And then ask him if what is happening in your life, if you're facing some real challenges, ask him if there's a discipline element to this whole thing. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Ask him that. Well, I'll give you a few moments. Holy Spirit, just speak to each heart here this morning. some form of rebellion maybe you've rebelled against Jesus period you don't want to follow him why don't you confess that say Jesus come into my life be my Lord and Savior I've been trying to live my own life and do it my own way and I don't want to follow anybody else I've rebelled I confess that is a sin I'm going to follow you now. I want your spirit to fill me. Tell him you want to be a Christian if you're not a Christian. Perhaps you have rebelled against the church. You think you, think you know best in everything. You haven't been part of the solution. You've been kind of doing your own thing. Confess that. Maybe you bailed on the church. Maybe you gave up on her. Jesus didn't. Confess that.
He loves his church. He died for it. Lord, thank you for speaking to us this morning. We say to you, we want you to be our functional Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.